1: It's time to begin another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Anybody who listens to this show regularly knows that uh, my clock management skills on this show are far from uh, good. I mean, I always end up uh, with panels that have so much to talk about that I keep discussions about one subject going. I never get to everything that I'm hopeful we'll talk about. And today is really going to be a challenge uh, because it is crossover day at the state capitol The day which presumably a bill must pass one body or the other to still have life during the current session. But as all of the people on this show today who are veterans of covering the Capitol know, there are always sneaky ways to bring a bill back to life as the session moves towards a close. Um, What's really fortunate about today is I have a panel of journalists who have been following the activity at the Capitol closely, and I'm thrilled that they're all here today starting With my Monday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Patricia Murphy, who is not only a reporter at the AJC, but writes the Political Insider column, which appears in the newspaper on Wednesdays and Sundays, and Patricia oversees the jolt at AJC.com. Big day, busy day, Patricia.
2: Very, very busy. Starting the, well, committee hearings began at 730, and they're going to go all the way till midnight and possibly later. We'll see what happens.
1: Wow. Okay. Uh, Chauncey Alcorn is with us as well today. He is a reporter for Capital B, the online publication that uh, focuses on uh, news in the black community. Uh, Chauncey, thank you for being here on a very busy day as well.
3: Pleasure as always, Bill. Thanks for having me again.
1: Maya Prabhu is here. Maya is a government reporter for the AJC. She covers uh, primarily, you've been covering the Senate, I think, typically uh maya right is that where you're going to be spending most of your time today is on the senate side of the building
0: yeah i i am tasked with babysitting the senators on a day-to-day basis but um from time <laughs> to time i will pop over to the house if there's a piece of legislation that i'm covering over there so if that gets added to the calendar i might i might they might see me in the house today
1: okay and chuck williams a veteran of legislative sessions for Chuck, and now you're at WRBL TV and have been for some time in Columbus. But how many sessions of the legislature have come and gone, uh, starting with your career as a print journalist down there in Columbus?
4: I guess I've covered it on and off for 20 years. Uh, back in yeah. the uh, early, back in the early uh, early 2000s, uh, Richard Hyatt and Jim Houston, two veteran newspapermen here sort of realized they were getting close to retirement, they decided they better train somebody to cover it. So Richard and Jim kind of took me under their wing and showed me how it works up there.
1: Well, we're glad you're with us uh, today. Um, Patricia, I think what I'd like to do, one of the two bills, actually, that I'd like to start with, because they relate to other political news uh, that we're dealing with today, are these two measures that propose to give some kind of state oversight to local prosecuting attorneys, local district attorneys. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. One of the measures would set up a council, a committee of some sort, which would have the power to uh, review and judge whether a prosecuting attorney is doing the job well and have the power to recommend they be dismissed. Uh, The other lowers the threshold for Uh, resident citizens of a uh, jurisdiction from 30% to 2% to call for a recall of a district attorney. Have I got those both right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm sure Maya can also um, get into the details of those bills because she's been covering those as well. Um, But both of those bills uh, were introduced this year after a Um, A series of new progressive lawmakers came into office. I'm sorry, not lawmakers, but district attorneys came into office in 2020. Although there's been conversation about having state oversight of DAs for some time. um, These bills have really come to the fore and really become the focal point of a lot of debate and um, contention since a group of new progressive DAs came into office. One of those was Deborah Gonzalez in... Uh, Athens Clark County, another one was Bonnie Willis here in Atlanta, um, a number of other ones across the state. Although I don't know we need to call Bonnie Willis specifically progressive, but they're definitely newer DAs um, from outside of the, um, I think, the mold of what lawmakers have been dealing with in the past. So that first bill, as you said, reduces the threshold to recall district attorneys. I spoke with Deborah Gonzalez in Athens about that one in particular. She said that would just be about 3000 votes in her particular area. So it's not a large threshold. Um, And it also would be totally different from um, where what we think of when we think of for a recall for all the other elected officials in Georgia. So a 30% threshold would stay there for the other, um, for the other elected officials, but not for the DAs. They would be the only ones singled out here. The other bill, of course, creates this oversight panel. One of the biggest pieces of contention in that Senate debate about that bill was that all of the members of that panel are appointed either by the governor uh, the Speaker of the House or the Senate leadership. So it would be an entirely Republican panel that would oversee all of the DAs here in the state of Georgia. Um, Fannie Willis has said she feels like, um, in particular, these bills are uh, just racist because of the um, the fact that a lot of the new progressive DAs are people of color, 16, um, for the first time in, ever in Georgia history. And um, other than that, she also said, it's just a huge distraction. It could be weaponized to get against DAs who are doing things that people in power may not like. Um, But Willis and Gonzalez both said that these bills are um, targeting people who are elected by their communities, elected because of the way they prosecute, not despite the way they prosecute. And um, I think we're going to hear a lot more about these bills, including from Donald Trump who put a note on social media over the weekend um, that he would like the DA, the uh, legislature to pass these and congratulated them for their courage in moving forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk more about Trump in a minute, but Maya, let's make it clear. These bills come out of governor Kemp's office. It is the governor who has been behind these measures from the very start. Yes.
0: Yes, definitely. I think, you know, some of the things that kind of spurred folks into action in recent months, year or so, um, is uh, the number of prosecutors who said flat out that they won't prosecute um, the abortion law, and that kind of is what yeah. whipped this up uh, into a frenzy toward the end of, I guess, halfway th- midway last year um, and, and you know, leading into these months going ahead. Um, you know, they are fascinated by Deborah Gonzalez, Um, you know, I feel like they need to call these bills like the Deborah Gonzalez Act, but um, that's neither here nor there. But yeah, so this is definitely a reaction to folks saying things like, we're not gonna prosecute um, abortion law. That's kind of, I think like, I I don't know, It's like that um, uh, Michael Jordan mean, where it was like, and I took that personally, like that for whatever reason, that just kind of like whipped things into a frenzy this year
1: yeah Chuck, um, when it comes to the oversight panel, I think it's important to point out that uh, critics of that measure say, Look, there's already safeguards in place to remove district attorneys when they have violated the law or aren't doing their jobs. You have an example of that in Columbus. Your past d a was uh, indicted. he was uh, it, uh, obviously lost his position as a result of that. So there are those who say, what do we need this oversight panel for, except it'll be all Republican.
4: (laughs) Bill, Mark Jones not only lost his position, he went to prison. He spent a year in state prison. Mark was, was asking on videotape a police officer to change his story so that that officer could Give him the evidence he needed to prosecute somebody for murder rather than manslaughter, which is what the original charge was. But Mark Jones is an example of this. He ran, and he was a white male, but Jones ran on a Free the Green platform. He ran saying, I'm not going to prosecute marijuana crimes, and he (coughs) defeated a 12-year incumbent. But he got in, and he was so woefully unprepared for the job. And it took 11 months from his first day in the office, less than 11 months, for him to get charged, indicted. He was his own lawyer for a while. He asked for a speedy trial, and he got one, got speedy conviction. 11 months before the system took care of it. But Senator Robertson from Catala, who is sponsoring this measure in the Senate, was using Jones as an example of why you need this legislation during the debate on Thursday. And I think that argument does resonate down here. Even though it was taken care of, I mean, it could have gone the other way as well. And and what I kept hearing was a, J, a judicial qualifications commission type uh, panel for DAs because there is no oversight for DAs unless the attorney general moves in
1: indicts, and pursues charges. Okay. Chauncey, uh, uh, as Patricia has basically already uh, made clear, Fonnie Willis has pulled no punches in the way she's described these measures as racist. She's used the word specifically. She's used it repeatedly. um, And she's essentially uh, uh, said, I'll, I'll read you the quote. She gave it to Patricia, actually, in a piece that Patricia wrote about it. I think it's targeting me, the bills, and maybe people with similar, now in this case, she's talking ideologies and, and wanting to replace uh, for ideologies that don't represent the majority of the state's population. So in that case, she's talking about the liberality that she thinks these measures are trying to uh, cut short, uh, but she's talked about them as racist measures as well
3: yeah this isn't directly related to some of the um investigations that uh there was attempts last uh during the uh, midterm election cycle to kind of subpoena kemp um involved in the uh trump um pr- uh related probe at the time I was like okay th- I, this isn't probably going to go over well i I, I, I suspected uh when uh, they were trying to get uh, kemp to you know testify on some of the stuff involving the um uh phony electors and things of that nature, that that might eventually, uh, if he won the re-election, that this would come back to, you know, they would try to, Republicans would try to do something to kind of send a message to uh, Ms. Willis that, you know, they, they have some kind of way to try to check her power in some of these investigations. And that, to me, seems, uh, even though that's not directly related to the legislation at hand, to be somewhat uh, involved in it or just kind of a way to check power. But um yeah, absolutely this is um something that has raised concerns in terms of being able to uh prosecute into your job without feeling like there's some kind of uh you know penalty for doing what you feel the law um requires you to do so it's it uh you've seen in you know states like California where they have a lot more uh the, the the bar for doing recalls and things of that nature is a lot has been a lot lower and it seems like that's the way that they're trying to to move things forward here in Georgia as well just to, as a way to well, we check get...
1: power on these prosecutors. Sorry Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Uh, you got a lot of good quotes from Fannie Willis in your interview with her, uh, Patricia. Um, among other things, she said, Governor Kemp didn't appoint me. He didn't do anything uh, for me to sit in this seat. The citizens that picked me did something for me to sit in uh, their uh, seats. So she's fierce about this subject.
2: Yeah, she was... Uh very, very um, to the point, really just angry about the entire situation. Um, She has not been named specifically by lawmakers when we're talking about sort of who are the quote rogue DAs and they do use the word rogue, Um, but she certainly could be a target of a bill, particularly like the recall effort. You can just imagine how that could be um, weaponized against something who again is doing something that is politically maybe not popular with a group of of uh, citizens in that county, but uh, that they're moving forward on nonetheless. Um, She and other DAs have also pointed out that the legislature has the power already to impeach DAs, although they've never done that because it is a rather convoluted process. Um, Also, the Georgia Bar Association has the power to discipline any lawyer, including DAs, who is seen as working outside the bounds of the law. Um, But I think Chuck's example is a really, really good one, because that was just such a brazen example of a DA who was who had totally gone rogue. Um, Although before he was convicted of those charges, um, it was very difficult to see how he could be removed from office. It was clearly a distraction. But what I'm hearing from DAs is that there are so many kind of different examples of uh, DAs in office who, um, in the case in Columbus, had clearly done something completely illegal, but others are just pushing cases um, against people perhaps in power, who those people in power want to go out and take retribution against. And so if you have a one-size-fit-all situation like the 2% bill, you really get into a situation where you have a very large hammer dealing with some individual nails.
1: Chauncey, uh, Donald Trump certainly jumped all over this this weekend at CPAC. Um, Among other things, he once again called Fonnie Willis a racist district attorney, said that her city is among, being Atlanta, is one of the most violent and dangerous places in the country. Um, she had a kangaroo court focused on a perfect phone call that I made, meaning his call to Raffensburger. He criticized um, the interviews that the uh, four women of the grand jury gave. But here's what else he did, Chauncey. He said that even if he's indicted, he, uh, 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 he said, told Newsmax this in an interview. He said, if I get indicted in Fulton County, if I get indicted by DOJ, if I get indicted in New York, I'm still going to be running for president in 2024, Chauncey.
3: Yeah, there's, um, I've seen, there's lots of speculation that, uh, you know, um, former President Trump might feel it's safer legally if he's running for office. It's a lot uh, harder, first and foremost. Uh, it's uh very difficult and a lot of political pressure to try to bring charges against a former president um it's an even harder job to do so against somebody who's running for president and, and, and the the uh what that appears is though you're you know taking action against your political opponent so in some ways um campaign uh even just running for office might give him cover for some of the legal ramifications of the things that he was doing um during uh 2020. i mean um, prior to 2020
1: Maya.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, for some reason, I feel like I hear a little bit of surprise in your voice that he said that he would run whether or not he's indicted. And I (laughs) I think that, you know, that tracks like that is who Donald Trump has always been. Um, So, yeah, I'm not surprised at all by the fact that that he, you know, even if it wouldn't keep him safe legally, even if that weren't the case, I don't think. Anything would stop Trump from what from running for, for president again if that was what he wanted to do.
1: All right. Chuck, get a final word on this subject in, please.
4: You know, I think we're about to see a fascinating chapter in American history bill. We're fixing to see all indications point to a man running for president of the United States and using it as a platform for a criminal defense on charges, possibly state and national. We've never seen this before. And I think what we're about to see is going to be a litmus test of our democracy.
1: All right, um, we're going to watch how all that unfolds. I suspect, Patricia, one last note on this. I, it, it, I have said on this show several times that Governor Kemp, having beaten Stacy Abrams by a significant margin, having demolished David Perdue, comes into this session without question as the strongest politician in the state of Georgia. If he's behind a bill, is there much chance it's not going to pass?
2: Oh, I don't think so. Um, this, these are two bills that um, <laughs> that the governor wanted to see. He's been talking about prosecutors particularly since the abortion bill was enacted. And we saw um, just a ream of local DAs, uh, particularly in um, the larger cities around the state and in Metro Atlanta, who said, look, I'm just either I am flat out not going to uh, bring ever bring charges uh, against somebody based on this bill, or in Fannie Willis's case, she said, this is just not going to be a priority in my office when I have kind of murderers and in her and the way she puts it, gangbangers um, to put behind bars. This is not a priority for me. And so you could see that really got Governor Kemp and uh, Republican lawmakers very, very upset. They felt like they had pushed this bill through and the DAs need to do what they're telling them to do. Um, Prosecutorial discretion is really at the heart of many prosecutors' jobs. But in this case, Republican lawmakers are saying, you're just flat out not doing your job.
1: Okay, uh, let's move on. Maya, another measure that uh, today will either be passed or presumably die for the session has to do with medical treatment for transgender young people. It's been a very controversial bill. Uh, The Republicans have pushed it here. And, of course, it's become a big national uh, culture wars issue for Republicans across the country. As recently as, what, a week or so ago... Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene came to uh, the Georgia Senate. You were probably there when she spoke, and that was the theme of her conversation. You know, we can't keep allowing families to let their children go through transgender uh, uh, transitions or treatments. Talk about that.
0: Yeah, you know, and I, I thought it was interesting that the day that she did that just so happened to be the day that um, bills addressing that exact issue were in the Senate uh, Health and Human Services Committee. Um, and there were two versions of of that bill on the same topic, one from Senator Clint Dixon that was definitely much more expansive, uh, you know, a, a limited all types of hormone treatment, puberty blockers, which is the main thing that, that children um, who... Uh, you know transgender children used in in assisting them with their transition um and you know allowing for medical professionals to be sued you know all of these things were in that bill that bill did not get a get a vote and then there was a second bill from cardin summers that um senator ben watson who is a doctor um and the chairman of that committee helped uh to craft in a way that was more narrow um you know at first it was just only limiting um surgical procedures, but they ended up including um hormone replacement therapies that also would not be allowed. Um, but it did it specifically did not include puberty blockers, which again is is the main way in which um minors use medical help to transition. So um yeah, so that hits the floor today. I am expecting, you know, emotional debate. Um Long debate, um, and I think I think it gets out of the Senate. I think it might languish in the House, but we'll see.
1: Chuck, a major theme of this session, uh, and from my point of view, and I may be wrong about this, even more than typical, typically in past sessions, has been bills by Republicans that want to take local issues out of the hands of local officials and put them under some form of state control. In this case, it's even more invasive, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. I mean, if I'm a father who has a child who believes they, in fact, are, have been born a different gender than the way in which they're being raised, it strikes me as troubling that the state decides I don't have the right to deal with my family in the way I think it's correct for them.
4: But the state's making a number of decisions. And I think, Bill, your point is well made—that uh, the state is looking for control. Abortion is a perfect example of that. And you know, one of the things that I'm curious about is—and I have not done enough reporting on it—and just what I've read and from other people's reporting—I'm not sure how many transgender. Uh, youth we have in the state and I mean what's the number are we talking about a larger number are we talking about just strictly a cultural war but and that to me that's that's where I think us as a reporter group have, as reporters have not probably laid this out as well as we should have been I'm not condemning my brothers and sisters but I'm just saying I'd like to know more about what the numbers are. And is this just the cultural issue? I don't know if that makes sense. That's kind of
1: My, Maya and then Chauncey.
0: Yeah, just to kind of go off of uh, what you were saying as far as like parents having the right to make decisions about the health care for their children. You know, I spoke with some Republican senators about this, and they say that in their mind, allowing this type of medical treatment for children, they equate it to child abuse. And so the state has the responsibility to step in and stop parents from abusing their children. So this is the mindset of, I'm not going to say all Republicans, but some of the, you know, Senate Republicans who I've spoken to about this issue.
3: Chauncey? Yeah, I think the the to Chuck's point, the the question is: Is this even a an issue in the state? I haven't I've seen any reporting on myself. This was similar um, a year ago with the in the divisive concepts bill. There uh, there was uh, legislation dealing with trans athletes and um, you know high school competing in high school sports. And to my knowledge, I don't I'm not aware that that was ever an issue um, in terms of trans athletes trying to compete in women's sports in high school. And similarly here, I haven't seen any reports that show that there are, uh, you know, how many doctors' offices, <laughs> you know, perform these uh, medical procedures. Um, I do think um, it might be smart politics. Um, this, is an actual, this is actually an issue, I think, particularly um, some might be surprised that there are a number of probably African-Americans who might also support a bill like this. Who This has been a culture war issue in the black community as well as far as trans rights. Um, and things of that nature. So I think it actually might pass, even though it's a non- it might also be a non-issue.
1: Yeah, uh, Patricia, I got to get to a break, but before I do, um, my guess is a watered-down version, a slightly watered-down version of this uh, means that it is likely to get through the Senate. As Maya points out, the question is whether the House will pick it up and uh, pass it as well.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it'll be a really important time for House Speaker um uh for the House Speaker to Show sort of where he's going with his caucus in this uh, legislative session. Um, it feels to me like a number of the most controversial bills have been bubbling up and um, being uh, sent over by the state senate. It feels like a more conservative caucus. It's definitely a more sort of um, uh, sort of expressive. Uh, 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 a demonstrative caucus right now. And so sending it over to the House, we'll have to see the House really so far seems very interested in economic issues, tax cuts, um, really really bread and butter issues like workforce development, housing around the state. And so um, this does not feel like a bill um, that John Burns is eager to take up. Whether his caucus will insist that he takes it up is going to be another question.
1: I, I really have to get to break, but Maya, I think it is fairly typical for the Senate to be the hotbed of culture war issues when the House tries to tamp them down a bit, yes?
0: I think I remember being here with you on the first day of session and talking about how, yes, in the Senate, there may be one less Republican than there was last year. The Democratic caucus may have grown, but the Republicans who were elected are very conservative Republicans and the chamber has gotten markedly more conservative.
1: Got to get to the first break of the show. We have so much more to talk about on Political Rewind. We'll be back in a moment. WRBL-TV Columbus is Chuck Williams, uh, Patricia Murphy, and Maya Prabhu of the AJC, and Chauncey Alcorn of Capital B are with us. Uh, Chauncey, you wrote a piece the other day on why the uh, uh, proposed tobacco tax increase is particularly impactful on uh, a black uh, Georgians. Um, first of all, I assume that measure it's still floating around. Am I, am I right about, about that, Maya? Do you know? Is it still it's still alive and, and uh, uh, well to some extent? Yes?
0: Yeah. You know, the thing about the House is they can uh, pull those bills at any time. Uh, so, yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. It's a very modest increase, uh, much more modest than what the sponsors initially wanted. But Chauncey, talk about the impact on, uh, on black Georgians.
3: Yeah, so we're talking about HB 191, which would increase the price of a pack of cigarettes uh, about 20 cents from 37 cents to 57 cents. We know that we haven't seen in the state of Georgia um, an increase on um, tobacco tax since uh, around 2003. Um, And uh, this is interesting, particularly for African-Americans because they um, are disproportionately affected both by the effects of uh, the negative health effects of smoking and secondhand smoke, but they're also more likely to be impacted. Uh, this would uh, hurt their pockets, uh, disproportionately lower income. And uh, some of the Republicans' opponents of this measure have said, you know, it's, it amounts to a tax on the poor. So, um, by and large, um, we know that first and foremost, Georgia ranks amongst the uh, uh, um, lowest states in the nation as far as the tobacco tax is concerned. And uh, this is something that the American Heart Association and the American Lung Association and other public health advocates have been, have been pushing for, uh, and they point out um, that, again, it would affect uh, the health disparities in addition to um, generating revenue um, to help uh, some of the uh, health care services uh, gaps that we have uh, in, uh, without Medicaid expansion. So it's certainly something that, uh, you know, if, you, if you're if you a smoker in the state and you don't want to see your taxes go up, and you know, you might feel one way, and if, but if you're concerned about public health, Um, Overall, you might feel feel the
1: other. Georgia has the second lowest tobacco tax in the country, Um, but it appears that, especially in the first year of a biennial, when you have all new elected uh, 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 legislators and leaders down there, Republicans simply do not want to pass anything that would be construed as a tax increase is apparently what the real opposition to the measure is all about. Patricia, let me turn to another bill that I know still... Is alive and we'll see where it heads. And that's the bill that would define anti Semitism um, and therefore allow anti Semitism to be included in the uh, hate crimes law, which already exists in the state.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So this was a bill introduced by um, Representative Esther Panich, who is the only um, practicing Jewish member of the Georgia General Assembly. And um, it was introduced uh, after all of the um, messages were left in Dunwoody and Sandy Springs, the anti-Semitic flyers were put in people's front yards. Um, We learned through reporting that that has been happening all over the state um, recently. And so Esther Panich has introduce this bill. It is co-sponsored importantly by John Carson, his Republican. So it has lots of bipartisan support. Governor Kemp has said it's an important bill to pass. And um, one of the uh, strongest things that it does is uh, obviously it defines anti-Semitism, but it says it bans the use of a swastika if it's used to um, intimidate a person or a group of people. And I mean, that's a real crime with real punishment to add that specific use of swastikas in the language of the hate bill. And so it really uh, would be an important bill with real teeth um, to move through the General Assembly. And because of the allies that it has, I think, has a really good chance of passage.
4: Chuck? You know, the definition, I think Patricia makes a very solid point. If they can get in the legislation where the swastika is, becomes something that has legal ramifications if you use it in literature and other stuff, targeted in anti-Semitism, I think that will... Be a defining moment for Georgia law. And I think it will be something that this body can send a message with. And I think that's important. Maya?
0: Just some just some quick cleanup. So this bill got another hearing on Friday and the language about swastikas and terrorism were was removed. So that is no longer in the bill that's being considered now. And then also this bill was filed before um, the reporting of the anti-Semitic flyers, but it got new. Li- I don't think it was going to go much of anywhere, but it got new life once that uh, those flyers were distributed.
1: Wait, wait, go back. I, I, You're telling us all something that I'm not sure. Anyway, you were covering it, so you would know this. So th- the swastika um, prohibition was removed from the bill. What led to the removal of that? That seems to me to be one of the most dramatic signs of anti-Semitism.
0: So I will say I had a doctor's appointment on Friday. I did not cover this hearing. I just know that in... Um, In a preview crossover day piece that my colleague and I, Mark Nisi, wrote before uh, Friday, it included that piece about swastikas, and we got corrected over the weekend that that had been removed. So I don't know the discussion that led to it, but my understanding is that on Friday, the part about swastikas was removed from the bill.
1: Okay, we're going to want to watch to see exactly how that uh, developed, because there is nothing more chilling uh, than seeing a swastika painted on the side of a synagogue, for instance, or a Jewish school, uh, or someone's home if they happen to be Jewish. So uh, we'll, we'll want to follow up on that. Um, Chauncey, let's move on to it, another uh, subject that is still uh, up for debate today. Sports betting. It's had several different forms Um, The Senate knocked down one version of the bill because it not only was uh, authorizing sports betting, but also included horse race gambling. And there there really doesn't appear to be any appetite for paramutual wagering at this point in the state. But sports betting is still alive and uh, kicking. Yes?
3: Yes. uh, And so the reporting of my uh, sources on both sides of the aisle say that this is something that May not get the support that it would have gotten <clears throat> had the folks who were pushing for it um, kind of come at it from a funding public education standpoint, like the Georgia Lottery versus um, you know this uh, free, um, pro freedom um, uh, approach that the uh, that the lobby has put forward for this bill. Um, I think that we're talking obviously uh, Democrats wanted to use this as a means. To try to uh fund um workforce development programs and trainings of that nature. That was back when we were talking more about casino gambling and things of that nature, but now we're just talking uh uh about online sports betting. So um, and uh, you know, there's it's an open question. It's still up for uh debate as far as where that's gonna go. But um that that um some of the folks on the Republican side of the aisle have been saying that th- that the uh but, uh folks who are lobbying for this bill made a mistake in their approach if they had come at it more from a funding public education standpoint then you know uh people should have a freedom to gamble then it might have it might have gotten more support than it may ultimately get is what i'm being told
4: Chuck? I want to play off what Chauncey just said. I had a conversation yesterday with Representative Richard Smith. Richard's a player in this because he's the Chairman of the Rules Committee and his committee will decide, you know, on the house side what gets in there. And he, in our conversation, sports gambling came up and I asked him, you know, where it was. And he reiterated what you just said, Bill, there's no appetite for horse racing. There's no appetite for casinos. But he did talk about the online gambling piece of it. And what he said was that from his personal perspective, if you could find a way to put that funding toward K-3 education, it might find some traction. And, and it goes exactly to what Chauncey was just saying, that, you know, here's a pretty powerful Republican saying it is. If that funding source can go through the lottery and into K-3 to help the kids that are having trouble reading, to to bolster that platform of early childhood education, that it would make sense to him. And I thought that was an interesting take from Representative Smith yesterday.
1: Uh, Patricia, I saw an interesting figure. I think it was in your jolt this morning that uh, in the past year, 1.4 million Georgians who tried to uh, get on online sports betting sites to place wagers were blocked. There's clearly an appetite. Well, we knew that beyond just that figure. We know that there are a lot of people, including all the major sports teams in this city, who are behind this effort.
2: Yes. And, you know, one of the stronger arguments down at the state capitol is not only is there an appetite, this is currently happening, Georgians are placing sports bets, they just have to go across the state line to Tennessee to do it. Um, But many of these Uh, online sports betting sites have geofencing so that they know where you are trying to place the bet from. And if it's against that state's law, they won't let you place that bet. So lawmakers are being told Georgians want to do this. They are doing this. The revenue when they are doing it is going to other states. And so can't you just let this happen in Georgia since it's already going on? You could be getting that revenue. And to Chuck's point, when you tell lawmakers that there's an additional source of revenue for very popular programs like um, Pre K three that is really really hard for them to walk away from.
1: Maya, uh, there are two. There have been different uh, uh, opinions about this measure, and maybe you can help us understand what bills exist, what form the bills exist in. Uh, are these? We, we know that there are those who are arguing you do not need a constitutional amendment to pass sports betting uh, because you'd make it a part of the lottery. And then there are those who have argued that it must be approved by the voters of the state. Obviously, if it needs voter approval, uh, if it needs a constitutional amendment, it's a much higher bar. Two-thirds of the body has to approve it. Where does this stand right now? What are we looking at the potential to move forward?
0: So there are two versions that are still kind of in play. There's one in the the House that does not include a constitutional amendment. It makes it part of the lottery and all money would go toward things like hope and and pre-K as was established by the law creating the hope scholarship, you know, many years ago. Then there's a version in the Senate that has been scheduled for floor debate today that includes a constitutional amendment, and it also allows for money to be spent on other things like rural broadband and, you know, um, workforce development, as well as needs-based scholarships. And And uh, Bill Kausert has been the one, Senator Bill Kausert has been the one uh, pushing that one. And, and he kind of set it up in his committee, uh, the Regulated Industries Committee, where, you know, we need this constitutional amendment to do it legally, and this allows, democrats to have buy-in because they need democratic support to get to the two-thirds it it it, um and it lets georgia voters to have buy-in they they get the final say at the end of the day and this is more inclusive and this is the best way to do it so that's how he's been kind of pitching it and so that will be up for debate on the floor we saw the last sports betting bill that included horse racing like was mentioned earlier go down in flames on uh thursday so we'll see what happens but The Senate has passed a constitutional amendment for a sports betting bill before. Now, the question just happens is, the question becomes what happens when it gets over to the House?
1: All right, uh, let's do this. Let's get the final break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with more in a moment.
3: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Patricia, I think most people have now know that they've seen the news that yesterday President Biden joined uh, the civil rights. Uh, leaders who were in Selma to uh, mark uh, the annual um, remembrance of Bloody Sunday, the day in 1965 in which uh, civil rights marchers trying to march from Selma to Montgomery were brutally beaten, including John Lewis, um, as they tried to move forward. And the president, of course, spoke out about the need for uh, new efforts to pass voting rights legislation we're going to talk about, uh, because tomorrow is the actual 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, we're going to talk about it in some depth on the show tomorrow. But in the meantime, uh, Patricia, we can tie it into to some uh, voting measures that are in the legislature right now, um, one of which is w- one that would allow more citizens uh, the right to challenge the registration of individuals um, and the Democrats, of course, are concerned about about this measure. Patricia.
2: Yes, um, that's a bill that is one of several that really are continuing to go back and look at complaints that came from um, Trump supporters really during the 2020 elections. And so um they're, they expanded the legislature expanded the ability of individual citizens to challenge the um, the validity of. Um, voter registrations and uh, and ballots in the last let- legislative session, this is reducing that threshold even further. It's something that we've heard obviously from voting rights groups are extremely concerned about that. Um, when we saw all of these sort of mass challenges to people's voter registrations, um, very little ever came of that. It was never shown that because of people's ability to have mass voter challenges, there were never any buckets of swaths of ill ineligible people voting or registering to vote. And so it's never been proven that that was a necessary um, piece of the new law last time around, but it's something that, um, that uh, particularly Trump supporters and conservatives are coming back at again for this time around.
0: Yeah, and so that that bill came out of the Senate from Ethics uh, Committee Chairman Max Burns, um, and as of now, it's not been scheduled for floor debate in the Senate, and so that kind of means we don't expect to see it. The Senate is different from the House in that they kind of set their rules calendar and they don't typically come back and add bills during the day, uh, whereas the House will do that. Obviously, we all know there are sneaky ways to get uh, legislation through, but as of now, that actual bill is not up for debate. So you know, us reporters are gonna have to keep close eye to see uh, what amendments look like and and what ends up trying to be placed into bills today
1: see the appetite, though, is still. Go ahead.
3: I was going to say, certainly, we've seen um, from uh, groups like Fair Fight and Black Voters Matter some sounding um, know, the alarm about uh, these laws and how they are affecting. Um, if nothing else, um, even if the voter, um, elig- you know, voters have their eligibility challenge and it doesn't go anywhere, what does what does that put in the mind of voters? Is it a form of voting intimidation unto itself, just to to be challenged? Folks who may. Um, fear some of the uh you know possible legal ramifications um, of that in addition to you know we've seen some i believe it's sb 221 uh, that deals with the uh, folks at the county level and taking um, third party funds to try to make up um, budget uh, gaps as it relates to administering elections and potentially being, uh, charged with felonies um as um for um taking funds um if this bill would were to become law so it all, all it does in mean, some of the minds of the voting rights community is create an, a, an environment where folks um you know who are a just trying to uh use their constitutional right to vote um being scrutinized more and folks who administer elections who are not um uh a, a, either volunteer or making not that much money to do it why would you subject yourself to the kind of legal scrutiny that, you're, that we're seeing with these laws, and, and especially um, two years removed move from the S passage of SB 202.
1: Chuck, I, I would like you to explain. We've referred to it several times already. The crossover day is not necessarily the death knell for a measure because of ways in which legislators can bring them back to life. So why don't you help our listeners understand what that means? If, for instance. I'm the sponsor of the bill that would give broader powers of people in Georgia to challenge voter registrations, and the bill isn't going to get, a, get passed by t- the end of today in the Senate. I can find a measure, uh, as we move towards signy die, w- that is similar enough that I can add it as an amendment to the bill and pass it that way,
4: Right. Bill, if I were a sneaky lawmaker, and I'm not, but God, that would be fun for at least a couple of weeks. You can say <laughs> that uh, you could. <clears throat> if I were sneaky, what I would do is, if the bill I wanted didn't get passed, and say it was the, it was the, uh, the challenge bill that y'all were just talking about. Maybe the Dropbox bill is coming through. Maybe I find a way for a cut and paste tag to that Dropbox bill. And all of a sudden at 1125 on sine die, that all of a sudden shows up. And we all know that there's some folks in those chambers that read everything or have staff read everything, but there are others that don't. Uh, And when that thing is. And when that bill shows up, that may be on the bottom end of it. And all of a sudden. They start throwing papers and celebrating in the House, realizes <laughs> they just passed something they didn't intend to pass. Uh,
1: you know, we didn't even get to talk about the bill that would eliminate drop boxes. Will it, so we're going to have to do that uh, to, tomorrow to see what happens with it. Patricia, one last quick note, because we're running out of time. Um, it's really fascinating that Bill White, the leader of the Buckhead Cityhood Movement, put out a memo uh, saying, uh, OK, we're, we're not going to fight. We're not going to have an opportunity to do anything about this because Brian Kemp opposes us until 2026. Uh, And by the way, the memo that he put out mentions you as part of the conspiracy to block the bill.
2: I assure you, I'm part of no conspiracy. Um, He said that I got a memo from the governor's office, which I certainly never did. Um, So other than the fact that what he says about me is not true, it's really, it's obviously not about me. Um, The problem with the bill and the governor raised these concerns before um, it hit the Senate floor was, were the constitutional concerns that those bills were raising, not the least of which I asked Bill White two years ago when he first told me about his plans, I said, well, I just don't understand where kids from Buckhead would go to school. Like, where would the mom or dad drop their kids off on the first day of school if Buckhead City is created? And Bill said, what do you mean? I said, well, they're not going to be eligible for eligible for APS schools and you can't create a new school system based on the Georgia Constitution. And that was news to him at the time. Um, They never resolved the question of schools in the bills. They never resolved the bonding questions, never resolved how crime was supposed to be falling um, in just Buckhead City. without building a wall which might have been an idea and in, in their first uh in their in their first ideas of about Ket city so there were so many problems with the bills they they failed it had nothing to do with me it had everything to do with the sponsors
1: well of course it didn't have anything to do with you uh, <laughs> um and, and i said that tongue in cheek uh, although he does mention you in the memo um so what yeah. the good news my i suppose is that this bill is dead I mean it's not coming back for quite a long time and it's a victory for Mayor Dickens um among the others in this in Buckhead who have opposed this, business leaders and others. So um so for the time being, that's going nowhere. All right, we're out of time. Maya, how late are we going tonight? What's your guess? Uh ten
0: thirty.
1: Oh, ten thirty. It'll be Chuck, ten thirty, really? Eleven. Eleven thirty.
4: 1.15
0: a.m. Oh, my God. Don't do that to me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. We are out of time for today's show. Tomorrow, we'll look at all of the things that didn't didn't pass, among uh, much more that we'll discuss on the show. Patricia Murphy, Chuck Williams, uh, Chansey Alcorn, and Maya Prabhu. Thanks for being with us. It was a real fun show with you all today. See you all tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and stay healthy.